Psalm 52, verses 1 through 9. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. <clears throat> Excuse me. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness, Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. Let's pause there and bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, Lord, as always, for your word. We're grateful for your presence, Father. We're grateful that we can tell ourselves, Lord, to be still and know that you are God, to be still and know that you have given us your word, to be still and know, Father, that you are present with us, wanting to guide and steer and gather us closer to you, Father, in understanding and fellowship. Help us, Lord, to understand more of what you have for us that we might better understand you and your heart and your mind and your will and all of the things that you offer to us to know. We praise you, Father, this morning. Bless this word to us. Feed us thereby, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Friday evening, if you were here for our Friday night uh, prayer meeting, uh, then you might remember that we spoke about just the benefit of the Word of God. It was simple and it was straightforward in regards to its uh, the theme of that lesson. It was just that the Word of God benefits us. And by just simply looking at two specific verses in one psalm, just two verses, two little small pieces of Scripture, we're able to look in those two verses and see that the Word of God is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, and that it offers warning, it offers the change that we need, that he wants to guide us in, it offers wisdom, it offers joy, it offers encouragement. Two verses. Two verses were testifying to us as we considered those things. And as we sat and chewed on those for 20 minutes, we were able to remind ourselves and be refreshed in the truth that the word of God is beneficial to us. And that we can find joy in understanding that. Two verses. Not all scripture is joyful. Not all, well, let me say, let me, let me rephrase that. Not all scripture is immediately joyful. There are other, two other verses, a number of other verses, but you can take two different verses and look at it and go, and it can kind of take your breath away in the, well, the pain that's presented in it, the difficulty that's presented in it. The subject matter is not necessarily as quick to bring a smile or quick to bring a stirring of joy in us as you read it immediately. There are passages in Scripture that don't bring immediate, yes, immediate encouragement to us. Uh, we speak often, and rightly so, about the kindness and the tenderness that we're supposed to have 
as children of God. We bring out passages such as Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 where it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. All of these things that we try to teach our kids from the very beginning, that we try to teach them that those aren't supposed to be our guiding emotions and our guiding feelings and the things that make up who we are as people. We're not intended to be malicious, not intended to be vicious, not intended to be violent just for violence' sake, or, or leaning into those well, less than godly feelings that oftentimes come up. We're instead to be kind to one another, it goes on. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. This passage comes up in sermons from me oftentimes. And it's a sweet thought to consider that, and it, it should be sweet to us should be something that we guide ourselves and our feelings and our thoughts and our actions and our behaviors by, verses such as that. That being said, if this is supposed to be the hallmark, if these are supposed to be the benchmarks of who we are as children of God, Galatians 5, we're going to get, that, get there here in a few weeks in our Wednesday study, where it speaks about the fruit of the Spirit being love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of these different things. Well, how is it that we can look at Psalm 52, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, and, and read things that he says such as, God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him who is done this way. How can we justify that? Or as oftentimes people will say, I can't reconcile. I can't reconcile this God of the Old Testament. Or I can't reconcile that God wants me to be <clears throat> God wants me to be the person He wants me to be, and yet He can allow sickness and allow illness and He can allow hunger and all these different things. People like to reconcile things, at least in their own mind. They like to well, they like to say that they like to reconcile, but they oftentimes don't put forth the effort that it takes to actually reconcile things. They don't put forth the effort to look into the Word oftentimes and see that the Lord doesn't need... Well, first off, He doesn't need us to sign off and approve what He does, but He's kind enough and gracious enough that oftentimes if we'll just seek out the Word and consider, look things over just a little bit, we'll see there's a complete and entire reconciliation between the love of God and His actions and what He does for, towards His people. We see this and we understand this. These words here might not sound tender-hearted. They might not sound forgiving. And these words here aren't the only passages in Scripture that make, well, that make us maybe cringe a little bit when we read them in regards to their less than tender sounds, perhaps. Uh, look at Psalm 59. Just in the Psalms alone, uh, we can find a number of different things that aren't pleasant to read, aren't entirely comfortable for me to read from the pulpit. I won't read well, some of the more difficult ones. But Psalm 59, verse 1 says this, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. There's no problem with that. No one can have an issue. Deliver me from my enemies. Defend me from those who rise up against me. We, as a country, we'll call for allies, and, and we'll gather together those ones who will fight with us. Uh, oftentimes neighbors, you know, neighbors will look out for one another. We want to be defended. We want to be delivered and protected from our enemies. But he goes on in verse 5 and he says, You therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. 
Some people take objection to that. Look in Psalm 58, one psalm prior to this, where he talks about the wicked who are estranged from the womb in Psalm 58.3. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the death cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. And here's my favorite passage here, verse 6. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Again, not very gentle. Not very tender sounding. And there are, like I said, much, much more uh, stronger sounding statements that are here just in the Psalms alone. Now you might, uh, I don't know how much time you spend looking at, you know, Bible study reference books and that sort of thing, or or if you get online and, and look to that for reference or any of those sorts of things, but oftentimes you'll come across different Terms in the theological world, or the uh, from Bible scholars, <laughs> some so-called Bible scholars, but you might be familiar with the term imprecatory psalm or an imprecatory scripture. Uh, some people pronounce it imprecatory. Uh, you can pronounce it however you want. I'm going to stop apologizing for my pronunciations because it is what it is. I say imprecatory, an imprecatory psalm. If you look for the definition of imprecatory. It's kind of hard to find it, actually, but it's, it's, it's related to, to imprecate, which means to bring a curse upon, or the, the, the bringing of cursing upon something. Not four-letter words and the like, but actually saying to bring harshness, to bring the opposite of blessing. And, well, the Psalms that we just read there are just some examples of what are, by some, are gathered together under the heading or the so-called title of the imprecatory psalms. Other ones, 35, a lot of ones, 41, I think, 31, 69, 79, 109, 137. I don't want to speak out of turn and, and lump some in there. But regardless, it's man's terminology for those things. Uh, and I'll tell you, I'm, I don't call them that. I bring it out just because oftentimes they are termed that way. But even in, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, even in the difficult words and the difficult verbiage that the Lord brings out, the judgmental, the judgment and the righteous judgment that he casts upon different ones, even in that, there's such tenderness in the Lord. There's such a holiness in the Lord. There's such a righteousness in the Lord that I don't like to just take his word and just bring these away and say, these are the bad ones. These are the difficult ones. These are the ones that bring cursing upon people. No, man brings cursing upon himself. Man brings hardship upon himself. The Lord just deals with things, and he does so righteously and holy. But that being said, these are called, by some, the imprecatory psalms. Those ones that call for judgment upon different people. Now, among some in God's uh, in Christendom and in the household of faith, they look at these ones and they oftentimes they'll kind of close one eye as they read over them and they're just like, oh, that sounds ugly and they'll pass by those things and kind of just not deal with it, I guess you could say. The really bleeding heart ones will even say, that's not the God that I deal with. That's not the God of today. That's not the God who is loving and kind. And will kind of remove these things from even consideration. Other people will look at such things as we see here and they're all on board with breaking out teeth and that sort of thing in righteousness. Perhaps, I mean, some people hold on too strongly to such things as this. Uh, They want anyone who crosses them 
their spiritual ideals, their spiritual preconceptions, their spiritual thoughts, and their, their specific doctrine. Cross me on this, and I want your teeth broken, and it will be, well, it's the Word of God here, and they'll hold on too strong to those things. Uh, where do we fall? Saints, where do we fall in regards to such things as these so-called imprecatory psalms? How do we feel about these things where, where David cries out for the destruction of his enemies? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what we're going to consider uh, for a little while. And maybe we'll get our feelings, if we aren't already familiar with how we feel about it, maybe we'll get them organized in our minds. And, well, appreciate these so-called imprecatory psalms. Now... That being said, uh, if you're a parent, if you're a, a, well, if you're a legal judge, you know that there are at least two sides to every story. You recognize that when your child comes up and says, um, Billy, there are no, no Billies here. Why do I always go to Billy or whatever? Billy, hit me. Well, you don't just go and thump Billy. You don't just go and grab him and bring, bring the wrath upon him. What do we typically do as parents? What do judges do? You ask for the other side. Billy, why did you hit him? Well, he was on top of me, thumping me in the face. you know, And he had struck me eight times, and I could not take, push him off. I could not pull him off. So I whacked him like so. Well, then Billy would get a high five, and whoever Billy had struck would probably get struck some more if you were living in a certain time, time frame. Uh, why did David speak of a righteous man laughing at someone else's calamity, laughing at someone else being destroyed by God, as we read here in verse 6, back in, in chapter 52? He says, The righteous also shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him when that one is uprooted from the land of the living. They'll laugh at them and say, here is the man who did not make God his strength. We need to consider the context. I think that was mentioned in our Sunday school lesson, wasn't it? We need to consider the context as with any scripture. If you want to understand it, you can't take, even if it's a blessing, even if it's encouraging. You can't just take the psalm, the two verses that we took from the psalm in, on Friday. As joyful as they are, you can't just take those and say, that's enough, that's all the word that I need. No, you need to understand what's before, what's after, what it is in the context of the book, what it is in the context of Scripture, what it is in the context of our lives, and just have a further and a deeper understanding of that. But particularly when it casts perhaps a negative light or might cast a negative light on David, on the Lord, on anyone else, we need to consider the context. And so we can. We can consider the context of this passage itself. If you look at the title of this, in the Old Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it's, it's contained there in the Hebrew, what, what, this, uh, what this psalm was titled when it was translated here into our English. And in the Hebrew it says it was to the chief musician, a contemplation of David or an instruction of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. <clears throat> if all we had was Psalm 52 and we just read Psalm 52 and we read about these difficult things, it would be difficult to perhaps reconcile, not having any kind of understanding of David or anything else. When we have the title, we can look at it and say, okay. We see that David wrote this when this Doeg guy went and told Saul and said, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. But if we had nothing else, we wouldn't have much more to go on. But thankfully, we do have the rest of it, right? 
we do have further context. So, have we heard of this Doeg the Edomite? Can we hear of this Doeg the Edomite and perhaps get better understanding of where David was coming from when he drafted the 52nd Psalm? Well, the answer is yes, 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 and yes. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21 to start, and let's consider where David's... Well, what, what was in his headspace when he brought Psalm 52? Now... You understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration of the Lord, ministered by the Holy Spirit, and those ones who recorded Scripture, wrote Scripture, did so for our admonition, our correction, all of these things. You understand this. But these ones were guided by the Spirit. But they had their own respective lives. They had their own respective context. They had their own respective events that contributed to these things, that led them and ushered them into sitting down and writing and presenting these things. We understand this. And the Lord let their personalities and let their specific circumstances come through in these things. And so we can consider this. Uh, if you aren't familiar with this with this story that involves Doeg the Edomite, King Saul, Ahimelech the priest, and David the anointed to be king. Well, then I'll give you a quick rundown here. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, David has already been anointed by Samuel to be the king to come. Saul had already disobeyed the Lord and done so a number of times. And the kingdom was going to be ripped from him, taken from him, and he knew this. He knew that David was going to be the next one up. And so he had made it his purpose to slay him, to kill him. So David fled and was on the lamb, you could say. Different ones were coming to him. Saul was hunting him down. Uh, while David was on the run, he fled to a city called Nob. Nob evidently was in the vicinity of Jerusalem, or so the historians tell me. In the vicinity, perhaps five miles, it seems, from Jerusalem. And that's where David fled to, and there were a number of priests that resided there in Nob. And so David met with Ahimelech, and he seems to have been the senior of the priests, if not the high priest at the time, and he asked for help. And Ahimelech, the priest, helped him. Gave him the showbread to feed him and those that he could feed with it. He gave him the sword of Goliath. And it seems that he also inquired of the Lord for David. That's a matter of contention we'll consider here in just a moment. Regardless, he did help, he did help David. And it was not unnoticed. And guess who it was who noticed that Ahimelech had helped David. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, not a Jew, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And so, after he received this help, David, after David received this help from Ahimelech, he fled, and Doeg returned to Saul. And so we look in chapter 22 where the story continues. In chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, David has gathered his men, more men have come to him, and they kept moving and fleeing from place to place. There's involvement here with some Philistines that, are, that is recorded here uh, Well, at the end of t chapter 21. But in the meantime, Saul is lamenting and, I'm just going to say it, kind of whining. Whining about the lack of help that he's getting from his men. Whining about the lack of support that he's getting. Let's just read a little bit of it, shall we? In verse 6 of chapter 22, it says, When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in hand and all the servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, 
Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse, David, give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Is he bribing you? Are you preparing to receive from him all of this abundance when that will come as being a result of that will come as a result of being one of his uh, subjects rather than me? All of you have conspired against me, he says. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There is not, not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day, and so on and so forth. Saul, Saul was struggling here, trying to hang on, justify hanging on to something that he had given up, that he had let go because he wasn't willing to let God lead him, rule him, guide and direct him. And so he did as oftentimes leaders do. He, he blamed other people. He's crying foul on everybody. Now, uh, guess who stepped up? Guess who said, you know what? I'm not. I'm your man, king. Well, of course, it was Doeg the Edomite. In verse 9, it continues. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, hey... As a matter of fact, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, you know I watched my grandchild and my granddaughter. It's been a couple of times here in the last couple of weeks. She's getting a little froggy, I suppose. But she came up and she asked me for a, I don't know, I don't even remember what it was that she was asking what the timing was, but oftentimes she'll ask me for a donut at 5.30 in the afternoon right before we're going to eat dinner. And I say, of course, I'm past the little cute little blue eyes and the cute face and all that. I'm no sucker. And I said, no, you can't have a donut. And so she goes, okay, Poppy. And she turns around and she goes over and she goes, Nana, Poppy, you know, give me a donut. And she tells on me. So what I tell her is what I learned on the streets. And I said, snitches get stitches, is what I told her. You know, snitches get stitches. And so she looks at me. She's not scared. And I haven't gotten, given her stitches yet, but the time's coming. A couple of times I've said this to her in the last couple of, couple of weeks. Snitches get stitches. Doeg snitched. Doeg snitched on David. And he snitched on Ahimelech. Now you remember, David was the Lord's anointed. Saul was in place at the moment and man, you have to give it to David that he was honorable and that he would not allow his men when they were given every opportunity to wouldn't allow them to slay Saul who was the Lord's anointed in that place and in that time recall that Saul was wrong in the situation in chasing after David he was not humble before the Lord recall that Saul was appointed to have that throne removed from him completely as a result of his own sin Doeg snitching on David would have been reason enough, naturally speaking, natural enough justification that he would have desired, could have desired, and called for the Lord to say, destroy that one. Uh, yeah, it would have justified it, naturally speaking. It would have justified, well, wanting Doeg to get some stitches, as it were. But it didn't end there, you understand, you've read this passage, read this account, you know that it didn't just stop with Doeg snitching on David and Saul sending some people to go find him or collect him here and there. No, they went to Ahimelech, didn't they? He called for Ahimelech and the priests later on in this chapter. Called for them to come up and see him, Saul did. And he interrogated them. 
and he sentenced them to death for what they, well, what Ahimelech had done. And Doeg's role wasn't finished there. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16 here. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. You understand how far Saul is gone, don't you? You recognize what he's doing here? Turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. So this man snitched and he killed and he continued to kill on Saul's order. That's substantial stuff that this man uh, Doeg did. There was a lot of blood on Doeg's Hands. You know, certainly it's in the Old Testament biblical context that we're considering this happening and that sort of thing. But, you know, every day we talk about mass killings and that sort of thing. Every day we see it in the news. And every day, I hate to say it, it's become so common to us that it, we're a little bit calloused to it, certainly. But you understand that still to this day, we read, man, nine were killed in a, a mass slaying down in San Antonio or, or whatever. There are 23 children, of course. And we think about those sorts of things. We've heard, and um, you know, what all the different events that have taken place. Eighty-five, eighty-five men of God, and then he went on into the town and destroyed everybody there. Doeg was a, well, he was quite, quite a man. He had some blood on his hands. Now he didn't terminate everybody because in verse twenty-two it says here that David said to well, Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech, and that son escaped and he made his way to David and he told him what happened. In verse 22, so David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be saved. Now, we know that God had identified David himself as a man of war who had shed blood. It was one of the reasons that he cited why he was not going to build his temple for him. Because, he said, you're a man of war and you've shed blood. And the Lord wanted something separate from that. What Doeg did was an atrocity. What Doeg did was an absolute, well, it seems criminal for sure. And something that well, that David could have easily determined he was going to serve justice. He was going to go out and he was going to slay him, put him to death. That he was going to go out and he was going to make Doeg the Edomite, I mean, number one most wanted. Put the bounty out on Doeg. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. The king is not going to get touched. But that guy who did that, I'm taking him out. And on a natural level, he would have had some justification in that. Except that outside of the title of this psalm that David wrote, that we 
can flip back to now in Psalm 52, outside of the title, we don't hear Doeg's name again. We don't hear of Doeg the Edomite. We don't hear of him getting his recompense. We don't hear of his getting justice. We don't hear of David going and rendering those stitches that a snitch such as that man deserved for the works and the atrocities that he did. We don't read of that taking place there. What we read is what he wrote. Why do you boast in evil? Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. God shall likewise destroy you forever, in verse 5. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Here is the man who did not make God his strength, in verse 7, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Now again, naturally speaking, he was justified in feeling this way. And I do believe that there, to a certain measure, these feelings can be pointed towards King Saul as well. But Saul was a saved man. Saul was a man who, well, he had faith. And I believe his faith indeed was accounted to him for righteousness. And I think that this is speaking to Doeg. He was justified in feeling this way, David was. Uh, you can read about Abe Lincoln. He rather famously, President Lincoln was rather famous for, and he's the president, so he had a lot of, well, he had a lot of correction that he had to do. He had a lot of oversight that he had to take care of. He had to supervise and manage a number of different people. Maybe not down to the nitty-gritty lowest portions of things, but he had a lot of people who were underneath him and in his command, and so he had things that he had to say. And oftentimes he'd get chapped off at people when they wouldn't do their jobs right. So oftentimes he'd sit down at his desk and he would write out a very strongly worded letter expressing his displeasure just as your parents express to you young people, just as your boss expresses to you employees when when you have your moments, perhaps you're a little bit boneheaded. He wrote down, he would write out a strongly worded letter. He'd fold it up and he would set it in his desk two days later, three days later perhaps, if time permitted. He would go back and he would read it after the emotions were gone, fold it up, and then throw it away, oftentimes. He knew what to do was not to act on his emotions, not to simply just start thunder-punching people with, with the strength of his office, because he could. He recognized that there were times when, well, then he, that he didn't need to just allow his emotion to get to him. He was justified in feeling it, perhaps, but he would toss those things away. David didn't throw away Psalm 52, and the Lord didn't allow him to. He allowed this letter, so to speak, to be recorded in Scripture, in posterity, in indelible record for us to have today in study. Why didn't the Lord allow this to be thrown away? Even though, Naturally speaking, again, this all makes sense, and all the emotions that are tied up, it makes complete sense that, that David would want that. Well, it was because it's more than just David's natural situation. It was more than just David's natural context that that mattered. Why did God allow these words to remain? Simply because they are his words, his thoughts that are being presented here in the 52nd Psalm and elsewhere. You need to consider the context, certainly. And we understand the context even the account that took place that led to him writing this. But you also need to compare Scripture with Scripture if you're going to study the Word. Uh, We know that David wrote from his own perspective. We know that David wrote from his own events and his own accounts. But we also know that he wrote from a figurative place. A, A spiritual, well, his own perspective 
mirrored and matched and gave shadows of the Lord Jesus' perspective. We understand this. We can see it throughout well, a number of these different a number of these different psalms that we call the Messianic Psalms, which are a lot more pleasant to read perhaps than the imprecatory psalms. But Psalm 22, verse 1, whose words are these? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, they're David's words, certainly. But are they not Jesus' words when he was on the cross? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they are. Now, you can start chasing your tail when you consider this sort of thing because when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was pointing back to Psalm 22 saying, Go back and look and see, this is what I, was think- what I am thinking. This is what my circumstances are. This was foretold of me. But regardless, it was prophetic. It was foretold. Oh, it, was a, it was a God thing, as one of my friends used to say. He's like, I don't know how to explain this, Gregor. This is just a God thing. And I knew exactly what he was saying. It's outside of the realm of just natural things. It's a God thing. The Lord was involved here. When David wrote, writing from his own perspective, he oftentimes presented the perspective of Christ. Psalm chapter 16. Therefore my heart is glad, in verse 9, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Also David writing, also David writing from the perspective of the Lord Jesus. It's identified in the New Testament where they point back and say, David's in the grave. (laughs) David is buried. Jesus, Jesus indeed is the one that he was speaking to. Jesus wasn't left in the grave to see corruption. David spoke prophetically in regards to Jesus and his own perspective a number of different times. So when David speaks in Psalm 52, back in our passage in verse 5, when he says, God shall likewise destroy you forever, in regards to not just Doeg, but to those ones who reject the Lord Jesus. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. It speaks much, much more than just to Doeg the Edomite. It speaks to all those ones who make it their choice to reject God, who make it their choice to not accept the Lord Jesus, who make it their choice to, well, to turn away His grace and His deliverance and His peace and His mercy and His love and all the things that He offers and that we know for ourselves as children of God. And it reflects what God will do with those ones. It reflects and it expresses what the Lord will do uh, well, to and with those ones who reject. There's another so-called imprecatory psalm, Psalm 72. This is David's son speaking, Solomon. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4. He speaks as his dad often did from the perspective of the Lord. Give the king your judgments, O God, it says in Psalm 72.1. Again, speaking from his own perspective, certainly speaking of the well, the king of kings, I would say, from that perspective. And your righteousness to the king's son, the son of God. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. All of these things speak on a broader sense of the Lord Jesus and will break in pieces the oppressor. Imprecatory? Maybe. But it's Bible. It's Scripture. It's the Word of God. And it's how the Lord will do. He's made it plain to us. Let's turn to the New Testament. See what Jesus Himself says on it. 
See what Paul says on it. See what the Word tells us in this age and for the age to come. Luke chapter 18 and verse 7. What can we expect in the days to come for those ones who reject the Lord, who, who well, not snitched, but sided with the one who is the accuser of the brethren, sides with the one who accuses us of being unworthy. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 7, Jesus says, Shall God not avenge His own elect? who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them, I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. He will. It's not just imprecatory. It's not calling curse just for the sake of just getting vengeance and getting back at somebody and, 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 and bringing them punishment just to satisfy an itch that we have. That's a, that's a human response. That's a human emotion. And God, praise the Lord, is not human. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Paul says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Well, good authority and bad authority, naturally speaking. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Strong words. 2 Thessalonians continues the strong words. Since it is a righteous thing, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God. Strong words, man. Those are strong words that those ones who would call those scriptures imprecatory psalms well, they would say, absolutely, it's just calling cursing on people. No, people call cursing upon themselves. People have called for cursing. People have called for separation from God. The Lord must simply do what the Lord does and render righteous judgment, holy judgment, that He has foretold, foreseen, foretold, foreplanned, foreordained, all of these things, but specifically has made plain to each and every one that it's coming. Uh, and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obeying the gospel meaning just simply accepting the good news that is the gospel. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And of course, Revelation speaks at length about that time to come, not the least of which is Revelation 11:18, where it speaks of the nations being angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. I mean, it just is what it is, saints. You know, the fact of the matter is, he goes on to say he should destroy those who destroy the earth. I don't preach a lot of fire and brimstone type stuff. And when I say stuff, I don't mean to be diminutive of the word. It's not just stuff. It is what it is. I don't preach a lot of fire in brimstone because, well, a lot of different people do. A lot of people focus on that. I believe that the goodness of God leads to repentance. Absolutely. And it does feel <laughs> much more pleasant to speak of the kindness and the mercies and the, and the joy things and, and the warm and fuzzies, I guess you could say, spiritually speaking. It's much, much simpler to talk about that. Much, much more enjoyable to talk about those things. But that being said, judgment and eternal consequences. Whether we want to be a bleeding heart and push those things away, if we want to just... Uh, we don't do that. Well, we have grace. We don't, we don't need to consider those things. 
We can't do that always. Judgment and eternal consequences are definitely unpleasant, but they are what they are. And what are they? Well, a measure of God's goodness, the goodness that leads to repentance, a measure of God's goodness is found in taking that enemy and all of those ones who willfully and intentionally and permanently, willingly make themselves culpable allies of that enemy, having refused Jesus and the offers that he has given. Part of the goodness of God is taking all of that, all of those things, all of those ones who make it their purpose to, well, to cast pestilence at the Lord and to cause problems for all of his people and those who love him. Part of the goodness of God is taking that and rendering the judgment that they elected to have elected for themselves over the peace and the joy and the grace and the love that was bought for them at the cross if they would have it. It's as simple as that. Part of God's goodness is saying, you who have believed, you believed for a reason. And and there is blessing to come from it. I have made this promise. You will not have to endure sin for all of eternity. You will not have to endure the presence of the enemy for all of eternity. You will not have to endure the presence of this one and the the penalty and the power and the influence of this one who has made it his purpose from the beginning to cause you every amount of trouble, every amount of difficulty, every amount of struggle that he possibly can. You will not have to endure that. Saints, I tell you what, and this isn't just me being a bleeding heart. I I hate the news. I hate hearing about people hating one another. I'm over people hating one another. I'm over people hurting one another. I'm over people being people. Not reflecting the love and the grace of God. I'm over people bombing one another. I'm over sickness on a natural level. I'm over just the sorrow in the morning. I'm over the foulness that causes God's people to stumble. I'm over the filth. I'm over the mistreatment that people render to one another and have rendered to themselves. I could go on and on about the things that I'm over. And it's hopeful to me to know that eternity is free of those things. It's hopeful to me. And he tells me that. And that's my promise. And that's why I look and I see these things. Man, I cannot stand that there will be those ones who will be removed from him. But if they have made that choice, and Satan is going to be taken away, if they want to go with him, it's their choice. It's their election. And I'm grateful for those ones who have chosen to stay with the Lord Jesus all eternity. Simple as that. And the goodness of God, the goodness that leads us to repentance is the promise that all of that's going to be away from us. Not out of sight, out of mind. Just completely removed because Jesus is present. The Lord promises us that faith has, well, just as sin has consequences, just as denying the Lord Jesus permanently and and, and completely has its consequences, Faith also has its ramifications. Faith has its benefits. Believing, following after the Lord, those ones who trust Him and submit to Him have not done so for nothing. And when He has taken His seat as the unopposed, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, you could say, unifying all titles, if you're a follower of boxing and all that sort of thing, 
when he stands or sits, as it were, as the unopposed victor and the king of kings, with no one to challenge, no one standing before him, no one casting accusations, will be on the right side. And will that not be a time for rejoicing? Absolutely it will. Can I begin to rejoice for that time now? Yes, I can. I can. That doesn't mean that I want to. I want you dead, man. <laughs> you know? I want you gone. You, you trouble me. Yeah, well, I hope you die. You know, <laughs> that's not how we are. That's not how, our, that's not how we're called to be. And that's not how David was being. That's not how David was being when he said, you're going to be cast out. You're going to be pulled up. You're going to be brought in destruction. God does not want to destroy I don't believe it for a moment that he wants to destroy his people. But he must destroy. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, David said at the end of our passage. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done in the presence of your saints. I will wait on your name for it is good. I believe that if David had his choice, and I'm not going to... Let me just say it this way, and I'm not trying to be noble. I'm not going to speak for David. I'm going to speak for myself. I've had a lot of people do me wrong. I have. I could keep, I could keep a list. And I've had people do me wrong in the job. I've had people do me wrong personally. I've had people do me wrong in a whole number of ways. And in a natural way, man, there have been times where I've wanted to give those snitches stitches. That's just how it is. But I, I'm not lying, and I say this from the bottom of my heart. I would much rather... Much rather sit in the presence of God with those ones them having repented. I would instantly much prefer rather than giving them a knuckle sandwich, giving them the word, and them accepting the Lord Jesus and, and become, if they weren't already, a child of God and my brother. I think that's what David would have desired. David would have desired Doeg to have come to faith. I believe that. Because he speaks here for the word of God. And even if David wasn't willing... The Lord Jesus is not willing that any should perish. We see that. Well, 2 Peter 3, 9. But that all should come to repentance. This is the good and acceptable thing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you think he wants to destroy all? Absolutely he doesn't. He wants all to come to that knowledge of the truth. Even if David did mean what he wrote in Psalm 52 and Psalm 58, Psalm 59, all of these other different ones, these imprecatory scriptures, these psalms, even if David meant only his natural flesh be satisfied, God did not. And David trusted him. Like I, like I said, he didn't mean it either. He trusted the Lord to do rightly. God must be holy and he will be holy. He will do what's right always. There must be a reckoning for those ones who choose Christ's death over life in Him. And that's what they're doing. They choose that He die and do so well for nothing for their benefit in their, in their perspective and in their context. There must be a removal of that wickedness. There must be a removal of that sin. There must be a removal of that evil. And in doing so, well, vengeance will be taken on all those ones who have harmed God's people. Doeg the Edomite not being the only one. And so the Lord will do this. Saints, I praise the Lord that, well, I hate to say it this way, but I praise the Lord for His judgment. I praise the Lord for His righteousness. I praise the Lord for His promise because He says that's part of Him. That's part of what He's doing. Strange work indeed is His judgment. It's not what He wants to 
define him for as the overall of who he is. He is not God the judging God. He is God the holy God. And he's holy in love. He's holy in goodness. He's holy in mercy. And he's holy in judgment. He's holy in righteousness. I praise the Lord that I'm on the right side of that judgment. I, pray, I praise the Lord that you're on the right side of that judgment. It's not arrogant to say that. It's not haughty to say that. It's humble to say that if you recognize that it was by nothing that you did other than believe that you are on the right side of that judgment. May we live a life that invites those who are not on the right side to recognize it. And no matter what they might have done to us, no matter how bad we want to give those snitches stitches, well, let's us live a life that invites those ones to join us there and rejoice when they do. Because that's what the Lord has for them.